0: Welcome to the Amiga Ireland podcast. I'm Jarleth, and with me today is Rob. Hello. And Luke. Hello. Anyone who does any kind of work with Amiga, whether using applications or installing libraries or software development has heard of Snoop DOS. It's a legendary application. And in our previous interview with Rob Cranley, uh, we learned that the author of Snoop DOS is actually an Irishman and he's with us today. Eddie Carroll, hello and thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, guys. It's very good of you to ask me to join you. I'm looking forward to reliving some of the Amiga memories.
0: Likewise. Um, can you tell us about your introduction to computing and Commodore?
1: Sure. Um, I went to school in Booterstown in Dublin and it was quite progressive at the time because the government had decided that every school was going to have its own Apple II. Um, But in this particular school, the guy in charge of the computers decided that wasn't going to do it. So he got funding and fundraising and so on and bought a couple of Commodore pets and then continued to buy them. And we ended up with probably about 15 Commodore pets all networked together using a thing called HydraNet, which was a a very early local area network that ran over serial ports. And there was a computer club. So 50 years were the people who did computer classes but there was a computer club that ran in the afternoon and anyone who wanted to could go along. So when I was in first year at school, I heard about this and I went along one September and it was an absolutely tiny, tiny room. So literally no room even to turn around. So you had people sitting at keyboards and then everyone else standing, looking over their shoulder, which is what I was doing. And so I stood there one evening and I was looking over somebody's shoulder and they typed in a a simple basic program and, I was looking at it and I was like, wow, I can see how that works. That's unbelievable. And uh, I was basically hooked. So I started spending most of my time there. And uh, a few months later, I managed to persuade my parents to get a Vic 20 for Christmas, which would have been, I think, Christmas 1981. And that was really the end of my childhood from then on. (laughs) Um, So the Vic was followed a year later by Commodore 64. And then a couple of years after that, Commodore 128. And around about that same time, um, the Commodore Users Group of Ireland was formed. And there was a letter in one of the local papers saying, if anybody was interested in forming a group, come along to this address at this time. And off I went with a few friends. And uh, we ended up on the founding committee. And that ran from, I think, well, maybe 1982, 1983, up until 96, so probably about 13, 14 years. Um, that was a great resource. Uh, because you had like-minded people. We had some people with a bit of hardware expertise, programmers, people who just enjoyed playing with computers, people who enjoyed playing with games. We designed our own cartridges, so you could plug into the back of the Commodore 64, and we had an EEPROM programming kit, and we'd figured out how to make cartridges and all kinds of good stuff like that. So uh, that that was great fun. Um, So from there... uh, I, I picked up assembly language and um, there was a book that Nick Hampshire wrote on the Vic called, I think, Vic Revealed. And it was a very, uh, it was a very technical book and it jumped straight into 6502 assembly language without really much introduction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and on the Vic, which only had three and a half K of memory, so it wasn't huge. The only way you could get assembly language in was by literally poking it in one byte at a time. So you would have these basic programs which were just lists of numbers and a little for loop that would read through all the numbers and poke them into some reserved bit of memory and you've typed them all in if you made a single mistake in any of the numbers well that was unfortunate that was you would find out fairly quickly because it would crash and of course because it crashed you just lost everything so you had to start again <laughs> so you would tend to uh, check things very carefully uh, later on people got the idea of putting checksums in with these so it wouldn't just crash at least it would give you a clue as to where the problem was um, so anyway assembly language was grace it was very very fast compared to basic so uh, once I got the Commodore 64 and I had lots of memory available, uh, I started doing more with that. Um, there was a, a package called PAL, which I think was called Personal Assembly Language. And that was by a guy called Brad Templeton, who, apropos nothing at all, ended up running humor mailing list on the internet for quite a long time after his Commodore 64 stuff. But PAL was a fantastic assembler because it just let you write your your programs as basic programs only instead of basic statements, it was assembly but you could use all the standard basic editor and line renumbering and all of that um and it would assemble stuff really really quickly and uh, then you could try that immediately and then go back and make a couple of edits so pal came with a disassembler as well and so of course, once you have the disassembler, you use the disassembler to disassemble PAL itself, and, and you can then start customizing <laughs> PAL. So I ended up making quite a few changes to PAL uh, to uh, to add things like macro assembly and so on. That, I think maybe at that stage uh, I was in college, so I was familiar with some of these from, from college projects. So uh, yeah, lots of happy memories from then. Um, what else did we do? Uh, at the time, some of you may remember that Commodore had made the 1541 disk drive. Hmm. So for the first year or two of my life, it was all tape-based. And then I got a disk drive for my birthday. And this was, again, transformation. thing in the world. <laughs> you know, yeah. Instead, yeah. instead of spending literally 45 minutes waiting for a program to load, it could load in maybe one to two minutes. Now, it should have been about 10 to 20 seconds, but Commodore made a serious hardware (laughs) mistake in the implementation of the 1541, as I'm sure you are aware. Yeah, yeah. And -hmm. the only way to recover it without an expensive hardware redesign was to use a really slow serial interface uh, and protocol to talk to the drive. So everybody suffered with that for a couple of years, and then some people figured out a way of downloading new firmware to the drive slowly. And then once you had the new firmware in the drive, you could quickly transfer stuff over to serial port using using a faster protocol. So that started to become quite common, and uh, I had to go doing that myself, and I developed a little fast loader. And its it's one claim to fame was that it was completely invisible. It took up zero RAM on the Commodore 64. So Mm -hmm. that, that was a big thing, because as people became more and more familiar with it, they used to keep stealing memory from underneath the basic ROM and underneath the kernel ROM and various other places to try and get up to your full 64k of RAM. Mm -hmm. So the one place people usually didn't go near, at least not not in the first few years, was underneath the Character ROM, because you got to the Character ROM if you swapped out the I.O. space, but if you did another switch, you could swap out the Character ROM and you'd have 4k of perfectly good RAM there. So I managed to stash my entire fast loader there, and what would happen, uh, this is a long time ago, but as far as I can remember, I would steal about 128 bytes off the bottom of the stack and i would use that to temporarily swap stuff in and as a normal ram from that uh, Mm -hmm. hidden space so whenever you wanted to use the fast loader it would swap itself into normal memory do its magic and then swap itself back out again so for all intents and purposes it didn't exist and yet you still had the benefit of you know getting 10 or 20 times increase in speed so that was pretty cool Um, very impressive and then (laughs) yeah there was a similar thing that we did on the uh, tape loading, which I think was called UltraDOS, uh, which worked much the same way, only it just sped up the, the tape loading. So your 45-minute program would now load in about three or four minutes off tape. And um, Looking back at the technology that we had available then, it's amazing anything worked. It was <laughs> extremely analog. But then again, Absolutely. if you look at modern computers, I think it's amazing they work as well. You know, There's so many things so that much go wrong. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Absolutely. So anyway, that that got me firmly enmeshed in the world of Commodore, and there used to be Commodore conferences on in the Novotel in Hammersmith uh, in the UK, and I got to go over to a few of those, and I would meet some of the Commodore celebrities, people like Jim Butterfield and Andy Finkel was there one year, I think, who had done some of the original Commodore 64 demos in in the user manual and mm-hmm. and various other people. And, you know, great fun. Met all kinds of interesting people there. Um, and then the rumor starts to come around that Commodore were going to do, like, a much better computer with 32-bit and fancy graphics. and da, da, da. So at that stage, my head was completely in Commodore. And I was following all the news, such as it was. It wasn't like you just log on to Twitter and see what latest <laughs> rumor is. But there, there was plenty of buzz around between the magazines and uh, some of the bulletin boards as well. Um, so, uh, long story short, I managed to get my hands on one of the early Amiga 1000s, and that's when things really took off. Um, that was around about the time when I was going to college as well, so I was starting to learn about things like C programming and, you know, how to actually structure code and, and so on. Mm-hmm. And I, I also had the 6502 uh, background, and the 68000 is very similar to the 6502 architecturally, just you know, you've bit more of everything essentially. Hmm. so uh it took me a little while to get up to speed on the Amiga and then after a while I managed to get a hard drive and that was like when you, you know getting the 1541 for the Commodore 64 was just another huge jump forward Big leap yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, then uh, other people in college had uh, Amigas as well and uh, I was also getting involved in the online community so a friend of mine in fact, a friend who bought the uh, uh, the first Amiga 1000 in Ireland, uh, which was an American model, uh, he was always trying out things. And uh, technically, he was not particularly astute. Uh, he kind of knew his way around technology, but he wasn't a programmer or anything. But he loved to experiment. So he set up one of the first bulletin boards on the Amiga, and uh, he then uh, enrolled me to to run it from. So that was a bulletin board mm-hmm. called Informatic, and it became one of the main Amiga boards in uh, in Dublin uh, for quite a few years and we had a, a pretty large library of software and we we had some decent bulletin board software running on up which we had then customized and that proved to be a great way to meet other uh, Amiga people as well you know I still run into people even now who were users back then and <laughs> have uh, have good memories of us so following on from that then um, i started dabbling with software and uh, that was where snooplast came from uh, literally i was just walking uh walking around college with a friend of mine who had just bought an amiga and he'd been trying to get some particular program working and he was giving out about there were no error messages it would just start and then stop and there was no way to tell what was going on and he said the computer should be able to tell me why it's not working Mm-hmm. and it kind of planted the seed so i went home that weekend and i thought well technically it should be able to you know it just needs to keep track of the things it's likely to do and then if one of those doesn't work you know print a message about it so i hacked together the first very early version of snoop dos which was like 0.91 or something like that and uh, that was during the weekend and i came in on monday morning and i said to my friend joe you know give this a try And he he went off and tried it and came back and said, wow, you know, it was missing a font. Mm -hmm. It was really handy. There you go. So, uh, and yes, this was Snoop Das Born. So I I then spent about a year doing little refinements to it. Um, If you remember, Fred Fish used to have uh, pretty much a weekly disc of new public domain software. Yeah. Uh, So I sent a copy off to him fairly early on and uh, he started including us on, on several of his discs uh, because it turned out to be quite a useful tool to try and get some of the other software on the discs working. Uh, so I started to hear feedback then from people around the world saying, you know, this is very good or can you make it do this and so on. So I kept refining us and making little tweaks here and there. And over the course of about a year or two, I suppose, it became quite popular and then i was stationed over in america for a few months in early 1990 and i think that was around about 1990 maybe it was a bit later than that anyway it was around about the time that uh, os 3.0 uh, had just come out with all kinds of nice new features and so on mm. and i thought this would be a, a good opportunity to learn about all the new features let's let's do a rewrite of snoop dos and uh, you know, make it all singing, all dancing, you know, draggable columns and clipboard support and built-in Amiga help and B sizable window and auto layout and blah, blah, blah. So it was really more a case of me just teaching myself about all these new technologies that I felt, you know, I needed an excuse to learn. So I spent about maybe two or three months working on that and, uh, sent it out to a bunch of beta testers and they all liked it and, um, yeah, I guess that became the, the version that ran now. And the one thing that has really <laughs> amazed me is after Commodore sort of went into the into the sunset around about ninety four, ninety five, um, the various PowerPC accelerator boards were starting to come out, mm-hmm. and I started to get emails from people saying it's not fully compatible with the PowerPC. <laughs> and I'm like, no shit, there was no power PC when I wrote yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. So, uh, similarly, I, I got a couple of reports saying the 68060 cache gives it a little bit of trouble. And again, well, that was yeah. <laughs> I'm Indeed, I'm, I'm very impressed it runs at all, given yeah. some of the things that it does. But yeah, what yeah. was nice is the people reporting this then went to the trouble of actually patching it and uh, mm-hmm. figuring out why it was broken and uh, and fixing it. So I, I then handed it off to a group of guys because at that stage I more or less moved on from the Amiga So mm-hmm. there were there was a group of guys who were quite active on the PC and they said, you know, would you mind if we took it over? So I said, sure, yeah, you have my blessing. Um, you know, just just keep a clear line as to you know where your version kind of continues on so people don't come bugging me if, if there's a problem with it. And they said, great, and and off they went. So I'm not sure exactly what stage it's at now, but uh, people still seem to be using it, so. Absolutely, it's one of the first things I always install when
2: I'm I working on, on a, on a new machine. <laughs> I use it
0: on a daily basis, trust me. It's very, very useful. If you want to get some um, help online, the first thing people are gonna ask you is what's the output of Snoop DOS? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's
1: it. Yeah, so need, needless to say, when I when I started moving more towards on, uh, PC and especially in my professional life, uh, I decided to go off and write a version of Snoop Dust for Das. And I mm-hmm. I had already started and I then came across Process Monitor and Registry Monitor by the Sysinternals guys. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. so they, they've had this idea too. Okay, now I don't need to bother. <laughs> so... Uh, <coughs> And, um, that, that's one of my most used uh, PC tools these days. Yeah,
2: yeah, handy one too.
0: And Eddie, um, did you write any other Amiga apps? I mean, after writing an app like that, you might not actually need to, but... <laughs> <just curious>.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so what, what I found when I, uh, when I started with programming professionally for a living, uh, it was a little bit of a culture shock, because after you spend the whole day programming, and then you come home, you sort of are more or less ready to turn off. So I had been very active uh, programming in all kinds of areas during college um, and that didn't persist as much. I was doing lots of programming, just just not in the, in the open source and public domain world. Nevertheless, I did do a few other things that ended up being spread around a bit. Um, I did a program called CPU Blitz uh, around about the time the Amiga 3000 came out and that was because the 3000 had a 32-bit path to chip memory And that meant it could access chip memory faster than the Blitter because the Blitter was only 16-bit. So for certain types of graphics operations, it was actually faster to use the 68020 rather than the dedicated hardware. And again, it wasn't because the dedicated hardware was inefficient. It was purely because it only had a 16-bit path into memory instead of 32-bit path. So it was was restricted by that. So uh, the thing that used to really annoy me on the 3000 was when you were in a console window and you were doing the directory listing or whatever and it was scrolling up and you could actually see the text scrolling up the screen kind of nearly one line at a time Mm -hmm. really frustrating you just want it to be faster so i optimized around that and uh, i I came up with a couple of tricks to make that run quite quickly and uh, i also made it fairly good at not getting in the way of other things where it could cause problems. And it was only a tiny little program, but uh, it it, it did what it did quite well. And again, people seemed to like us and uh, it ended up Mm -hmm. getting spread around quite a few places. And then there was an English service called CompuNet, which real old timers may remember. Um, This was kind of like an English version of an American service called Q-Link and it was also like a Commodore version of Prestel or Micronet. And essentially, you could buy a modem from Commodore, plug it into the modem port on your Commodore 64. All the modem software was built into the cartridge, as well as the modem hardware. And it had a, a very nice GUI on us, uh, in as much as, you know, at 40 by 25 character resolution, <laughs> you can do a GUI i had scrolling menus and you know it's called the duck shoot menu where you could scroll horizontally to select options Uh, you could upload software they actually had an online marketplace where you could write your own software upload it set a price for it, and compunet would do a 50 50 share with you Uh, so they would host this and distribute it for 50 percent, and then uh, the other 50% of any revenue went against your Compnet account. And if you were really lucky, sometimes that ended up being a net positive. <laughs> However, CompuNet was quite expensive to use. So usually you were you were, you were doing okay if you broke even. Mm-hmm. Um, CompuNet also had the first multi-user game, uh, which was the original MUD, uh, which which started in Essex University in, in 78, 79. And they did a custom version of it specifically to run on CompuNet, which which ran on deck twenty mini, or well, I suppose mainframes really. Uh, a modern iPhone would run rings around it now, but at the time they were they were pretty decent mainframes. Uh, and you could use CompuNet to play Mud, and this was one of the really early multi-user games uh, where you could play up to twenty other people all sitting at their Commodore sixty fours in London, you know, Edinburgh. Uh, Wales, Dublin, wherever, Greystones in my case. <laughs> so when the Amiga came along, Compunet moved onto the Amiga as well. But there was a big problem, and the problem was Compunet ran at 1,275. So there was 1,200 board download, 75 board upload. Now, very really like the modern DSL modems, where your, your download is faster than your upload, 75 baud is if you're a good typist, you can easily outtype 75 baud. <laughs> <board. laughs> it's really not very fast. But CompuNet was mostly about downloading. You know, it was only sending keystrokes and things up, so it was actually okay. The problem was that the Commodore 64 hardware uh, that was built into the modem was optimized for doing 1275 on the Amiga the serial hardware couldn't do 1275 so you had to either get a very expensive smart 1200 1200 modem that had a 1275 fallback in its firmware and you know they were at the time 5-600 euros there were things like the US Robotics Courier and, and so on um, you couldn't just go out and get a cheap modem you, you're, in particular you couldn't go out and get a cheap 70 or 80 pound 1275 modem such as mm-hmm. you would use with a BBC Micro or, or something else so I was very uh, disgruntled by this. So I managed to do a serial driver for the Amiga, which would talk at 1200, 1200, but for the upload part, it would emulate 75 baud by sending 16 characters at 1200 baud in, you know, just the right pattern to fool the modem hardware into thinking that it was 75 <laughs> baud. And if you know much about serial encoding, it's not quite as straightforward as that because you have start and stop bits. Mm -hmm. and those start and stop bits you generally don't have any control over uh, at the hardware level you know that the hardware puts them in automatically Mm -hmm. so i tried a naive approach to it first just ignoring that and it just didn't work at all and i then found i could do the equivalent of kind of signal smoothing so if there were any little ripples caused by 010 transitions i could just smooth them out and Mm -hmm. essentially then rely on the clock skew correction that was built into the modem hardware to kind of fix all of that and amazingly it actually worked so Compunet then started distributing that to older Amiga customers and uh, it probably helped well I have no idea how, how much it's helped but it certainly opened it up to a wider audience of of Amiga users because now you could buy a cheap modem for you know 60 70 pounds instead of an expensive one for several hundred pounds mm-hmm. So that was good fun. And that that introduced me to guys like Dave Parkinson, who was quite active on the UK Amiga scene for a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, and also got me, you know, lots of kudos at the Amiga DevCons that I used to go to. So uh, Mm -hmm. what else did I do? Uh, There was some bulletin board software uh, that I did that was quite niche. And uh, and a few other little bits and pieces. I I did a thing called OnShare which back in the days of the uh, internet news groups, uh, if you remember, programs would be UU encoded and mm-hmm. they would be posted as text messages and sometimes multi-part text messages if it was a big enough piece of software because there was a limit of maybe 30 or 40K on the size of a, an individual message. So mm-hmm. if you had several hundred K, you would have to concatenate them all. And it was quite painstaking to strip all of this stuff out. So uh, I did a kind of... a an archive tool that would just figure all that out for you. You would just throw all the the messages at it, it would put them in the right order based on the subject line, uh, figure out the formats, extract them all. Usually they were packaged as some kind of shell script, and then you run the shell script to split it back into its original file. So it would do all of that. And again, it was nice and small, so you could just include it on every every, uh, disk or zip file or whatever that you were distributing. So uh, that got reasonable amount of distribution as well. Um, there's probably other stuff as well, but you know, my memory isn't that good anymore. <laughs> we feel very old.
2: Oh dear. And <laughs> um, so I, I think, I think we mentioned it earlier, but you, you're not really involved with the Amiga community anymore, are you? Or, or do you um, have any involvement at all? So I, I don't have.
1: I don't have any ongoing involvement mm-hmm. at the moment um, other than that I'm, I'm still kind of very interested in Amiga history and, and Commodore history. Mm-hmm. Um, I was saying earlier, just looking around the Amiga users uh, uh, website, um, I was very impressed by how much stuff is actually mm-hmm. going on. Uh, you know, if you had asked me before I looked at that, I would have said there's very little going on. Yeah. But actually, if you go out and look things like AROS and OS 4 and you know, a whole load of things which I think is fantastic and is actually, you know, is encouraging me now to, uh, you know, to go out and look at this in more detail. My mm-hmm. biggest problem these days is I have essentially zero spare time because I have <laughs> yeah. two kids that are occupying nearly all of my time mm-hmm. um, and my day job is pretty intense at the moment as well. Um, but I would love to get back more involved in that because I, I have so many happy memories from you know the 90s and the 80s, when yeah. all of this stuff was new. So uh, it, it's great to see that it has, it has survived this long, and in fact, yeah. not only it survived, but it appears to be thriving.
2: Well, I was just about to say that it's it's uh, in the last few years it's kind of picked up because I think uh, sort of around uh, 2004, 2005 is probably the lowest point that I remember, and I I, I remember kind of picking up a couple of tw- 1200s for basically nothing, you know. Uh, you know, people were just giving them away and giving away the hardware, and no one had wanted anything to do with it. So, uh, that. But since then, it's been on on the up. It seems, and you, you know, it's, if you look on eBay, as soon as any reasonable condition Amiga comes up, it's snapped up, or it's uh, it goes for crazy money. Sometimes, you know, it's it, there's actually quite a demand for it, and you know, yes, it there's a lot of this new new user groups cropping up and uh, new hardware coming out, and so it's it's definitely on the up at the moment
1: yeah I think you've mentioned in the previous podcast that there's been a huge renaissance in terms of what you might call DIY hardware and the tools that are out there and and the capabilities for someone who has a little bit of hardware sort of interest and, and expertise to just sit at home and you know develop FPGA based stuff their own circuit board with 3d printing mm-hmm. you can do decent cases now as well for not much money yeah that's it, it it's stuff that 10 years ago was literally the the stuff of science fiction mm-hmm. you know so uh, that's fabulous as well and you know it it opens up all kinds of new possibilities one of, one of the most impressive things i've seen recently which is not directly related to commodore but it's indirectly very related is a website called visual 6502 have you come across that
2: no i haven't but i'd like the sound of
1: it (laughs) It, it's it's well worth a look what what essentially happened was somebody in i believe hungary uh, got access to an electron microscope scanning microscope and they took an old 6502 processor and they got some acid and they started burning the layers off was one layer at a time and using the electron microscope to essentially photograph us at very very mm-hmm. high resolution and what they got was a series of pictures of the transistors that make up the 6502 mm-hmm. and they then developed some software which could digitize those transistors from the photograph and do a logical map of transistors they then wrote a simulator to simulate those transistors and wow. having done that they ended up with an exact simulation, not an emulation, but an actual simulation of the 6502. Now, what's at a transistor different... level. At transistor level. Wow. So, what, what's the difference between an emulation and a simulation? The simulation was doing essentially what the real hardware was doing. So, all the undocumented instructions, all the quirks, all the weirdness is exactly mm-hmm. reproduced. So, <laughs> not content with that, they then re-implemented the simulator in JavaScript. And if you go to visual6502.org on your iPhone or Android, you can actually run the 6502 emulator in JavaScript on your phone. And it has a nice visual screen that shows you the entire chip and it flashes the different portions of the chip as instructions are executing. And it shows you zero page and you can see all the memory being modified in real time and it just blows my mind. And the total time that was taken to develop this was about six weeks, including all the <laughs> scanning and so on. So I just take my hat off to them, you know? It's, uh, it's impressive stuff. Mm, and that's just, that's just one example. There was a talk, uh, I think it might have been at one of the Chaos Computer Club uh, kind of meetups a few years ago, maybe 2012. And I just came across it on YouTube the other day and it was um, an analysis of a Commodore 64 demo. And it was one of the kind of later generation demos that was, you know, pulling out all the stops. Mm -hmm. And it actually went through it step-by-step talking about all the assembly language tricks that they had used to achieve various things. And again, it was highly detailed, highly impressive, just fabulous. Had any of this stuff been available, when these platforms originally came out, you know, it just blows your mind as to what could have been oh,
2: achieved. What might have happened, yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: So, uh, yeah, so we we live in wondrous times, for sure, <laughs> absolutely. Um, if, if if you could tell us, um, what do you do for a li- a li- living these days? So. Um, it's At the moment, it's a straightforward question. A few years ago, mm-hmm. it wasn't quite so straightforward. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you a tiny bit of history. Okay. Please do. Um, Go for it. Um, so I came out of college in 1990, having done uh, four years of computer science and, you know, four years of meek stuff on the side. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, there was very little happening on the computer scene in Ireland at that stage, or certainly that I could see. And most of my class, ended up moving abroad for their first job. But I, I didn't particularly want to move abroad because I enjoyed Ireland and I liked living here and all my family were here. Um, so I, I interviewed with two companies. One was a graphics company that made graphics hardware and one was a communications company. and there was a thing called ASN1 which if you've ever had any involvement in telecommunications I sincerely hope you've not come across this abstract syntax <laughs> notation version one Gosh. it's a very detailed way of specifying protocols and uh, for, and you know storage formats and so on mm-hmm. and I had done one of my final year uh, projects on ASN1 and I just tasted it with a vengeance so the communications company during the interview said oh we see you did ASN1 for one of your projects that's really useful that'll come (laughs) Really handy here. So I said, right, thanks very much. And I went off and joined the graphics company. (laughs) That turned out to be a a great place to work. They had a development office in Dunleary in South Dublin. And they were just starting to introduce a new range of high-end graphics accelerators based on the Texas Instruments 34020 microprocessor. And this was very similar architecturally and in other ways to the Amiga Plus Blitter. It had two cores, and one was the essentially a MIPS processor, or something very similar to a MIPS processor, but the instruction set was very like the 68000. And then the other core had built-in primitives for doing all the stuff that the Amiga Blitter did, which I already knew very well. Mm-hmm. So this processor sat on a separate graphics card inside your PC, It had its own video connector and you could connect up a high resolution screen at sort of 1280 by 1024 which, you know, was pretty high resolution back in 1990. Yeah, Certainly the the monitors that could display that were about $3,000 each, (laughs) Uh, but you had to have a separate monitor for your VGA uh, display because the idea of multi-mode hadn't really come about yet. Uh, So I got to spend the first year in that job. Writing drivers and assembly language and control software and so on to talk to that graphics card, which was fabulous. And then uh, I got sent over to the States to work on the graphics coprocessor uh, for that card, which was a floating point chip that could do all kinds of 3D stuff very efficiently. And that was even better. So we had things like AutoCAD, and there was a a standard AutoCAD test image of the space shuttle. And it was a very detailed representation of the space shuttle in wireframe and uh, it would take about 150 seconds to render using the normal AutoCAD VGA driver, which is literally just how long it would take to draw this model on the screen as full zoom out mm-hmm. with all the vertices and so on. And with our driver using the 3D acceleration and so on, it was about 0.6 seconds. So that was a pretty, a pretty good improvement, improvement if, yeah. if you're working with that kind of stuff on a day-to-day Absolutely. basis in an engineering mm-hmm. company or something. So anyway, this was like my dream job having come off the back of the Amiga and it took me over to the States for a number of months every year and uh, got to work with all kinds of cool people, really strong hardware developers. We were involved in the race for one of the first 3D graphics chips. And if you remember Creative Labs and uh, the 3DFX, Mm. um, around about that era, there were actually about 23 different graphics companies all vying Uh to the standard 3D graphics chip. And at one stage, both Dell and Gateway were tendering for a 3D graphics chip to go on their motherboard. And that was kind of like the Nirvana. If you got that deal now, you were made. So we got down to the last three. Uh, we, we developed our own 3D chip at that stage. And we got down to the last three out of about 20 companies that were vying for us. And uh, sadly, we didn't get it. Uh, S3 uh, beat us on price rather than on features. And uh, the company had put an awful lot of money into that effort. And uh, after it didn't didn't pay off, the company slowly went downhill over the next two years. So when I joined, I think there had been about 200 people altogether. And uh, by the time I left in 1998, I think there were five of us left. Hmm. So at that stage, I decided, I think I see where this is going. I don't think it's Hmm. going to turn around. So uh, I decided it was time to do something else. So I then joined a company that uh, made network routers. And at that stage, I had just gotten an ISDN line as a, as an improvement over the standard phone line mm. because you could do 64K or potentially 128 kilobits a second if you bonded two channels together. And I was very conscious of the fact that ISDN was billed by the minute. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like the idea that you could have your line sitting up there, ticking away, costing you money inadvertently. So... I I was quite keen to find a modem that you know could dynamically dial only when there was days of going backwards and forwards and wouldn't keep the line up the whole time costing money and could be intelligent about it. And so I started looking around and I couldn't really find a router that did exactly what I wanted. And a friend of mine from college was working for this company and uh, I was chatting to him and he said, well, our routers nearly do that. And by the way, we're hiring <laughs> So I went along and interviewed there and uh, ended up joining them and ended up making a few changes to their software to make my ISDN line work just the way I wanted. And I stayed there for uh, probably about six years. uh, And in the meantime, we developed an ADSL router, one of the first ADSL routers. And uh, I was fairly intensively involved in that. The original ISDN router was based on an embedded 386 processor. And uh, then we moved over to PowerPC for doing the uh, DSL stuff. And then in 2004, I decided it was time for something else. So I went off and, and did consulting for a few years. And then a couple of friends that I had uh, had been experimenting with speech recognition. And, you know, in fact, one friend in particular uh, liked his cars and he liked his technology and he was, he was an ex-Intel uh, guy. And he was pretty hardware savvy and software savvy. So he had designed a a mobile MP3 system that was voice controlled uh, where all the electronics lived in the car booth. And then he had a a kind of a microphone up in the cockpit that relayed stuff back by radio and all of this. And he had his whole MP3 collection sitting in the booth uh, and he could just call out songs as he was driving along. And we were like, this is really cool. You know, you you could definitely productize this. And uh, long story short, we ended up forming a, a company and the technology evolved into a living room solution. Uh, and we developed a remote control that uh, worked with Windows Media Center and speech recognition software that would give you access to all your various types of media, be it you know, uh, MP3 songs or videos or DVDs that you might have ripped or your TV guide, all of that. Uh, mm-hmm. That was all based at that stage on uh, Windows and C-Sharp, and then there was some embedded codes in the remote control itself. So it was one of those products where everybody who had it seemed to love us, but we were very bad at getting it into people's hands. So mm-hmm. that ran for about five years and we ran out of money and customers. And uh, then I was back into the world of consulting again, and uh, I actually ended up back where I started more or less. With the communications company where i've i've been more or less full-time for the last two years only instead of doing adsl we're now doing vdsl and instead of running our own operating system we're now running openwrt which is mm. uh, a version of linux specifically geared as uh, router applications so that's basically what's keeping me busy these days and it's actually keeping me very busy it's not it's not very exciting but it is very interesting <laughs>
0: It sure is. It sure is. And um, there are some interesting hardware developments going on at the moment for Amiga. Do you have opinions on things like the Vampire Accelerator cards and the the new Amiga, you know, the motherboards, the PPC ones that are coming out uh, under AEON and stuff like that?
1: So I I don't have a huge opinion on them because I'm only vaguely aware of them, (laughs) Um, but I'm absolutely (laughs) enthusiastic about them uh, to the point where, you know, I would seriously think about getting one myself. Uh, if for no reason other than, than just to dip my feet back into that world again, um, you know, and as I was saying earlier, I think it's I, I think it's a real testament to the strength of the platform itself that here we are, 2025, 20, even 30 years on, and uh, there's still so much enthusiasm and so much interest in it, you mm-hmm. know. And um, at the time, it's hard to really imagine how popular things like the Commodore 64 and then the Amiga were. In their time the, the Commodore 64 I think worldwide sales were 18 or 19 million mm. even by today's standards you know that's a huge uh, user base for any for any desktop platform for, yeah
2: for once for one single
1: machine yeah absolutely so uh yeah they Commodore got an awful lot of things wrong but they also got an awful lot of things right mm. and a lot of that came down to having a really strong engineering team behind them and um you know had had the rest of their team match the capabilities of the engineering team you know we could be having a very different conversation at the moment um i noticed david uh, pleasant's project uh which is in progress at the moment Mm. uh which would be kind of like the inside story of of commodore from from his perspective over in the uk so i'm very much looking forward to uh uh, to reading that to finding out a little bit more about uh, what may have gone on behind the scenes that we're not always privy to
2: Mm-hmm. yeah I'd say, I'd say it'll be a, a a good read all right yeah and um, so for the well I suppose the same the same goes for the um the the news well the new incarnations of the operating system itself you know have you ha- had any experience at all with like the likes of Eros and MorphOS and OS 4 or is it you know just you're just hearing about it again now
1: Pretty much just hearing about it now, but, but in particular, AROS, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is essentially a re-implementation of the, the Amiga API as, yep, that's, uh, that's as, as, as an emulation API running on, on other platforms. I think it's a fabulous idea. It's, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, similar to Wine for uh, Windows emulation on Linux. Um, well, it's, I, it's,
2: it's, it's, actually, it's actually sort of a native implementation as well. So it, there is, a, there is a, a version that runs hosted on Linux, but there's a native but actually running on the hardware version as well.
1: Sure, sure. And as I understand it, there there is a uh, a version that will that will run native binaries on um, PowerPC or sixty eight K hardware yeah, as it's, well.
2: It's, it's on, yeah. It's it seems to be uh, quite easy to uh, compile it for different architectures, which is impressive.
1: Yeah, I, I think Fabulous a, a huge undertaking given that mm-hmm. a lot of the documentation for the internals of the OS stuff was was somewhat limited. Uh, yeah. The Amiga documentation in general was quite good. Um, but there were still quite a lot of unknowns that you would need to uh, you would need to figure out for a project like that. And from from the quick reads I had be- before coming on today,
2: it sounds like they're pretty much at the hundred percent stage now. Oh, it's, it's it's perfectly usable as a as an operating system in, in, in as much as an Amiga-style operating system can be. But uh, yes, it's perfectly usable. What actually, one of the key era's developers is an Irish guy as well. Uh, really, Dan uh, he's he's is, is he lecturing or something in UCC? Yeah, yeah, he Computer is. Computer
1: scientist yeah. or something along those yeah. lines. Neil. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. I uh, see. We, we Irish guys we're, we're all <laughs> over the place now. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Right. If we could ask you um, about a favourite game app and uh, maybe a demo as well.
1: Sure. This this is going to be quite old school. Okay. <laughs> go on. <laughs> um so favourite game um, probably the game that impressed me most at the time uh, was the Cygnosis game I think it was Shadow of the Beast Mm -hmm. Um, I remember when I saw that originally literally my jaw was just on the floor you know I was it was one of the most impressive things I had seen up until that point absolutely Um, uh, as an actual game it was okay but visually (laughs) it was just stunning yeah
2: technically it's brilliant yeah
1: in, in terms of games uh, that I really enjoyed playing, there were two games that stick out, uh, one with Great Cabana Sisters, which was mm-hmm. not overly groundbreaking in any particular way, <laughs> but they just absolutely nailed all the important stuff from my mm-hmm. perspective. So many, many happy hours of playing that, really, really enjoyed it, and um, and then the other game, which is not a million miles away from us, was Boulder Dash and also Lemmings. Um, so oh, you can yeah. see I'm kind of more into the puzzle games than the, the shoot-em-ups. Um, yeah, wasted far too much time in all of those games <laughs> over the years uh, and revisited some of them actually only a couple of years ago uh, and yeah. Uh, yeah, they, they still had it. <laughs> um, in terms of apps, uh, Deluxe Paint is like one of the original apps that got an awful lot of use and um, i used the look paint for loads and loads of of things really really nice app to start off with um because and again if you look at it now it would look extremely crude it'd be like painting with crayons but at the time <laughs> when you look at where everything else was and then deluxe paint came along it was such a jump forward mm. that. You know, you, you could feel your mind expanding with the possibilities, so that was great. Um, there were some other apps as well. Uh, I'm trying to remember now. There was a, an, a, another graphics program called uh, Photogenic, which was actually yes. by Julian Ralph, mm-hmm. uh, who I'm still in touch with quite regularly. Actually, uh-huh. very good guy, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that had it was it had a couple of rough edges but it had a really nice plug-in architecture and some of the plugins were were fabulous for it and you could do some really nice things with that um uh, lightwave uh i played with a bit as well and that was deeply impressive but you had to know what you were doing uh, to get the best out of it
2: and yeah. sadly i didn't really know what i was doing <laughs> it didn't it didn't stop you wasting many hours faffing about with- with cylinders and, and spheres. Well, for yeah, me exactly. anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. many, many winters evenings just rendering random shapes. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: And um, so beyond that, I there's probably plenty of others, but, you know, they've kind of faded from my uh, memory. Well, I, I will give one small shout out. They're not really apps as such, but the, the debug tools Enforcer and MungWall in particular oh, were just so useful and they were so useful to the point that I ended up re implementing them both on the PC and then on the various embedded platforms that I've worked on professionally since then <laughs> and in fact that the most recent one was as recently as a week ago for a particular bug I was trying to track down on, on our current platform just tremendously tremendously useful tools hmm. and again at the time it, that kind of stuff is fairly commonly available now but at the time it wasn't and it's a testament to the you know the, the engineering strength of Commodore's uh, development team. You know they—they mm-hmm. they, they really knew their stuff. Um, in terms of demos, I—I um, I used to crave the latest demos, and I would—I would get them from wherever I could. Um, so I should be able to rattle off ten demos off the top of my head, but I can't because <laughs> it's so long ago. However, <laughs> I do remember State of the Arts, which yeah. pretty yeah. much lived up to its name. That was—that was really impressive um most things by red sector if, in the same way that you know certain authors you will if they have a new book out you will just tend to buy it because it's He's by that author it, yeah. and similarly with red sector any red sector demo that I came across I just knew it was going to be a good one um in a slightly different direction the original amiga juggler demo which went back to I think, god 1985 or 1986 mm-hmm. completely mm-hmm. blew me away when I saw it as well and again very crude by the standards of even a couple of years later but at the time you know that was that was i think one of the first programs to use the 496 uh, color ham mode Mm -hmm. so instead of being limited to 16 colors or even 256 colors here was all this really subtle shading on the spheres and as they were moving around the screen you could see the reflections in them and it was like oh my god Mm -hmm. Now, I have to say, I probably had most, if not all, of my family driven demented uh, back when we were living in Greystones because they would routinely be dragged into the computer room to see whatever demo I had managed to get my hands on and they would have to sit there for three minutes and pretend (laughs) to enjoy (laughs) this. So I have to give a shout out to them for their their infinite patience. Good stuff. But yeah, lots of happy memories of both the Commodore 64 and, and the Amiga demos.
0: And there were um, there were some, like one of the things I remember, the magazines that, you know, brought the latest and greatest news and surprises uh, every every month or however, um, often they were. Did you read any of those magazines?
1: Indeed, indeed. I read pretty much all of them that I could get my hands on. <laughs> um, you know, things like Amiga Formats, Computer Shopper, which was quite a general one, was mm. it actually had... Uh, really good articles. One, one thing that used to annoy me greatly was computer magazines that had articles written by people who didn't know what they were writing about, which mm-hmm. was unfortunately more common than it should have been. But the, the result of that was when you came across articles written by people who did know what they were writing about, that was tremendously refreshing. Um, So Computer Shopper looked like it should have been a really tacky magazine and in some ways it was. But actually a lot of the stuff that was in there was was really good, solid technical stuff. So I enjoyed that. Um, There was a magazine called Transactor uh, from Canada, which actually started off as the Toronto Pet Users Group magazine, but it turned into a full magazine that had tremendously good technical information uh, in it. Um, Then there was a guy called Jeff Walker and... uh, He had an Amiga magazine that I I did some writing for as well. And that was really good. In fact, it's probably the only magazine that I still have in my attic. I'm I'm, I'm in my attic office at the moment. And I believe if I was to open one of those cupboard doors uh, and have a look through it, I would actually find all my old uh, issues of Jeff Walker's magazine. Uh, That used to do real kind of deep dives into various things, uh you know desktop publishing ray tracing programming and so on uh, in a way there's other uh, other magazines wouldn't take the risk with so so that was good i came across uh, through a link on i think on the amiga users website actually uh the archives of amazing amiga which was one of the american magazines and uh, for a good number of years that was also a must read there was it just covered slightly different slants on the amiga scene than most of the UK magazines. So uh, they would have interviews with people that that you would never come across in Europe and, you know, interesting people doing interesting things with their Amigas. Uh, So that was was good fun as well. And yeah, plenty of other ones. Uh, Zap64 back in the day and... uh, 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 What do we call this? Uh, Something Video Games back in the early 80s. Uh, computer and video games. So computer and video games. Yeah, computer, yeah. That's the one. Yes, uh, many happy memories of that one. Uh, yeah, as well. So, uh, yeah, there was the, the UK in particular had a great computer scene for quite a while, mm-hmm. um, and it's kind of interesting. You still see some of those old authors uh, popping up from time to time, absolutely, uh, yeah, in yeah. in other parts of the world, and they're they're mm-hmm. still doing what they were doing, albeit in maybe a slightly different guys. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah,
2: yeah. And what about, um, you know, there, there have been a couple of books. Well, there's a, there was a book a while ago uh, about the, basically the, the, the Rise and Fall of Commodore, I think was the, the subtitle. It was On the Edge. Did you have a read of that? Uh,
1: I have it here somewhere, actually. <laughs> I think I did read it. I'm trying to remember, did it arrive and I read it? Mm. Or did I try to order it and I couldn't find somewhere to order it? But I'm pretty mm. sure that I have it here somewhere. And if I do then I read it and enjoyed it. That sounds sounds frighteningly vague. Um, (laughs) To be honest, I have a bit of a soft spot for nearly any uh, computer history book. Mm -hmm. So if I just turn around and look at my bookshelves uh, behind me here, there's about, I don't know, probably two or three hundred computer books on there and the vast majority are some variation of computer history. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, always fascinating. fascinating. Uh, always fascinating not a great use of space to be honest <laughs> no, because, no. Uh, again that's,
2: I can't get rid of of that's one that I have myself and I've read it a couple of times there's yeah no, that particular one there's no way to get rid of it yeah but, uh, and yeah.
1: In, ter- in terms of other books uh, yeah there, there are a few books I really raise um, there was one called The Amiga Guru Book which you possibly came across yeah 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 uh, it was by Ralph uh, Ralph Babel Um, Yeah, something like that. A a real technical deep dive into all of the uh, sort of technical internals of the Amiga. (laughs) Uh, Highly, highly recommended for anyone who wants to do serious um, Amiga programming. Yeah, Ralph Babel. Um, Then there was a real slim little book by uh, Mike Sims. And I think it was called something like Guru Meditation Volume 1. And Mike Sins is the guy who actually wrote the Exec kernel uh, originally, mm-hmm. um, and a very smart guy. He also wrote Enforcer that we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and uh, and and various other cool things. Very very high class guy. And this is a real slim book, but it talks all about the internals of Exec and how to use it to its best uh, advantage. And then there was another book called I think Inside Amiga and. Again, if you know your Amiga history, you'll recall that Amiga-DOS was developed by a UK company as a kind of a bolt-on because the original Amiga disk operating layer uh, wasn't ready in time and there was an issue. And so they just got this English company to port something else, which became Amiga-DOS and had all the BCPL yeah, BCPL structures nice. and headers and nightmare and all that. Yeah, it was a very uneasy match, and yeah, mm-hmm. B pointers that were shifted left twice, and yeah, it, yeah, yeah <laughs> it was. Uh, it's, it's still a pain in the hole. <laughs> it was not. A, it was not a perfect fit, but uh, Amiga DOS internals was the first book that really kind of shone a light on a lot of those decisions from a from a technical point of view. And why certain things are the way they are and mm-hmm. how to get the best use out of them and so on. And I had a really good covering of the of the DOS API as well, to a level of detail that, that hadn't been covered anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um I I sort of have a recollection that there was a book that had a full disassembly of exec with comments. I don't know if I'm imagining that or not. Um
2: <laughs> not what I have anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah. If, um, wow. if there was, I'm going to put that in the list as well. If, if there was, <laughs> then there definitely should be. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I certainly had a Commodore 64 version, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, was by a Danish uh, publisher, I think, and it came in a ring-bound uh, binder, and it was a full disassembly of the, the Commodore 64 basic and kernel with full annotation explaining all the tricks and why things were done. Tremendously wow. useful. Yeah, I can imagine. And, uh, in fact, on the strength of that, a couple of because well, I was still in school when I got that. So a couple of us printed out the uh, the PET ROM and did the same exercise on the um, the PET ROM just because you know you can. Yeah. And and, you can uh, that much free time. <laughs> indeed. Yeah. God, I remember. I remember those days having free time. Yeah. So uh, uh, all that kind of stuff I find uh, I find fascinating. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Um, uh, can you tell us? Do you still own any Amiga hardware?
1: So the Amigas that I own at the moment, uh, I have uh, an Amiga, uh, I have my original Amiga 1000 with all the signatures under the lid. And I have my friend's Amiga 1000, which is the NTSC version. Mm -hmm. Um, Very nice. I think I might still have my Amiga 4000, actually. I was trying to remember did that end up getting sold, but I have a feeling that I wasn't wasn't able to let go of it. Mm. And... uh, and then I have a couple of old Amiga SCSI disk drives. And uh, I think my 4000 uh, has a TCP IP card in it as well uh, for getting online. But I also think that it may have been using coax rather than a twisted pair. So the number <laughs> of things I could connect it to is probably diminishing <laughs> small more at this stage. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, so, that would be probably it for the Amigas. On the mm. Commodore 64 side, I, mm-hmm. I still up my VIC, my Commodore 64, my Commodore 128, and I think I might have a C16 kicking around somewhere as well, and possibly even the CD32. Um, right. I never I never had a 1200, but only because I couldn't justify it, but I always really rated the 1200. Mm-hmm. You know, I, the 1200 to me was, after the 3000, it was the next sort of near perfect computer that the commodore had done it it just Mm -hmm. ticked all the boxes and i remember before the 1200 came out i was reading a lot of the rumor about what it was going to have and what it wasn't going to have and some of the ways they may cripple it so it doesn't compete too closely with the 4000 and in the end they brought it out and from my perspective they've made all the right decisions Mm -hmm. they 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 have made it genuinely good rather than something that could have been great but wasn't yeah so, absolutely. Uh, well i didn't end up getting one myself i knew loads of people that did and it was probably my second favorite amiga actually after mm. the
2: 3000 and still still it's like one of the most popular ones nowadays as well you know and, and rightly so yeah yeah that's it um just a little a little word on the 4000 if you do still have it I would uh, pull it out and make sure it doesn't still have the battery in it because I've had to repair a few of them now over the last while. That the battery leaked on the motherboard and destroyed it. That is an excellent point. <laughs> just, I will check, that the, next, out there. I will check <laughs> that the next time I'm in Check <laughs> the
1: capacitors yeah,
0: yeah. as well next yeah, to audio.
2: Yeah. Believe it or not, the capacitors start to leak at this age as well, and the, on, only on the 4000s, your older ones are probably fine.
1: Yeah, is, I was, 4, going, to, 4, I was 4, going to 1200s, yeah. I, I was going to say, actually, uh, there, there's a certain vintage that if you're older than, you're probably fine on the capacitors. Yeah. Um, it was when capacitor manufacturing started kind of ramping up, and people started cutting corners and so on. Uh, in terms and of suppliers, it, that the problem started. We we had the same same issue on some of our early routers. Uh, yeah. Sadly, yeah. very sadly, in terms of what it cost to put rise. Yeah. But, uh,
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: It's
2: it's it's unfortunate, but yeah, worth keeping an eye on if you. Uh, if Absolutely, you, if you want to keep it running. Absolutely. So, uh, mm. um, so the the CUGI meetings uh, back in the day. So, were, were, they were a fairly formal affair, really, or what way was no, it running? They, they
1: were pretty pretty informal. Uh, the way they worked generally was we met every fortnight. Um, I think the annual membership was maybe about fifteen or twenty pounds, something like that. Uh, it was it was relatively nominal. And mm. uh, the club had a library of software, a public domain software, and anyone was welcome to take any of us. Or If they just brought along a blank disk, they could get a copy of us, of, of any software they wanted from us any evening. The, the way the evenings were structured, it would generally run from seven until maybe around half, nine, ten, depending on, on what was going on. There would usually be mm. two or three kind of... Semi formal presentations. Uh, we, we met in one of the local schools, so we had access to the school's video projector, which was an absolutely massive thing that had to be transported down the entire, you know, from one side of the school to the other, down various corridors and up and down minor hills on this kind of rickety flooring with bumps and I don't know to this day why, I suppose it was non slip maybe, but. The wheels on the trolley for this really expensive projector were very small and every single bump made it vibrate and how we didn't blow the bull bed I don't know but we never did so we had we had this big sort of equivalent of you know I suppose uh, uh, six foot by four foot screen to actually project the Amiga uh, onto, mm-hmm. which was which was fantastic. So we would generally have two or three people will give a uh, sort of ten or fifteen minute presentation on some particular aspect. It might be a new piece of software they had that uh, they would demonstrate or, you know, a demo or a game or they would show you how to do a programming thing or things things of that nature. Some people would just do a general talk about something that has happened to them. I remember actually, I was talking about speech recognition earlier, one of the very early Amiga speech recognition products. And I, I can't even remember who did it, but I had bought it. And I decided I would give a demonstration of it. So this would have been around maybe 1987 timeframe. Mm-hmm. So as if you know anything about speech recognition, you know, it's quite processor intensive to do all the mm-hmm. algorithms to, to do good quality speech recognition safe to say it's comfortably beyond what a 68,000 <laughs> running at 7 megahertz can do a good job on, but never let it be said it didn't try. <laughs> so uh, I started off doing the demo and, and the way it would work is you could train it with various phrases and it would then recognize those phrases and you could trigger actions based off them. Mm-hmm. So I had a few kind of pot phrases set up and canned responses, trivia meek speech incisor and so on. So I started off and did the first one and there was some noise from the audience and uh, then the microphone picked up that noise and it is best to match against us. Oh, and of course, it, got, it didn't do it very well because it was just in random matching at that stage and that made the audience laugh harder, <laughs> which then matched against something else. And the demo just went on completely lights out like that for about 10 minutes of the audience laughing and then it saying something random and then them laughing at that. So uh, that was quite entertaining. Mm. Um, but well, we, we had a number of firsts at the meetings. You know, uh, we were the first, certainly in Ireland, uh, possibly in the UK in some cases, to show off a number of the new bits of Commodore hardware, like the CD32, the Amiga 4000, uh, the Amiga 3000, and so on. So it was a great opportunity for people to, to get their hands on this stuff and actually try it out. Uh, because at the time, uh, a lot of those machines were still quite expensive to go out and buy. Mm-hmm. you know like a thousand euros or a thousand pounds back then was you know pretty hefty chunk of cash it's a pretty hefty chunk of cash now but <laughs> yeah. 20 years ago it was it was quite serious yeah. money so we had a few brave souls in the club that, that had budget to spend on this and we're quite happy to let people kick the tires Um so at our at our peak we probably had about 50 people coming to the meetings every fortnight and it was a committee of about five or six people who would meet a week in advance and just figure out who was going to be browbeaten into presenting something the following Friday. And I think there was a club newsletter as well that came out once a month, which would be anywhere up to 20 or 30 pages. And again, we would have an editor that would go around and hit people on the head until they, they produced an article that could be included in the newsletter. So, uh, yeah, all those newsletters are, are still on file somewhere as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, But certainly some defensive indeed indeed i think the website is probably still online with at least some of that content um mm. i think it's probably cuji.org c-u-g-i.org i would imagine it's very much of its time i haven't been there for a few years <laughs> <laughs> um but you know if if you want to see what things were like back then it, it'll, it'll maybe give a little bit of a sense of it um mm. so uh yeah, some of the friendships that uh, that were formed back then are, you know, uh, last shoots of that day. I'm I'm going out tomorrow night now with three or four guys who who I met there in probably the, the mid '80s, and we're still in touch, and we still meet up every month or two. So, uh, yeah, happy times. Mm. Right, Eddie. Did you ever expect Snoop Dogg to be as popular as it became? Uh, honestly, no. Um, I was very surprised, to be honest, by how far afield it, it travelled. Um, from my point of view, I was, you know, I was sitting in a bedroom in in Dublin, typing away, uh, or in Greystones, uh, I think, as it was then. And uh, I I just sent off some of this stuff uh, on the internet or by email to some of the news groups, and then didn't really think much more about it. And then you start getting contacts from California, from Switzerland, from Germany, Australia in one case, Italy. So uh, it, it really kind of opened my horizons in the, in the sense that there was such a widespread community out there uh, willing to engage. Uh, so and it became a great calling card as well if I was traveling myself later on, in, in that most people that I ran into who uh, were familiar with the Amiga had also come across SnoopDots at some mm-hmm. point. So, it, you know, I certainly didn't set out with the intent that it would be it would be that popular, but uh, very nice that that's the way it turned out.
0: Did you ever put it on your CV?
1: Um, I think it may still be on my CV because <laughs> <laughs> because I registered the domain for Snoop DOS, uh uh-huh. back back in the early days when domain name registration was quite easily available, and I ended up calling my consulting company after it and it turned out to be a really bad idea because mm-hmm. uh, anytime I'm calling out the name over the phone to somebody, they're always like, oh, Snoop Dogg. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no not Snoop Dogg. And in fact, if you, if you look up Snoop Dogg, he actually came after Snoop Doss. He came Yeah, back yeah. yeah. So, you know, take that Snoop Dogg. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it's caused so much grief in that way that if I was doing it all again, I, I just would have done something different. But <laughs> I still have the domain name, and it's it's still my main email address. So, uh, yeah, it's it's in as much as I have an up-to-date CV, which I don't. But if I did, it would be on there in, in that form, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, And I still have the, the Snoop Doss tribute page uh, buried somewhere in uh, somewhere on one of my old websites. So I'm, I'm sure Google has it all indexed. Actually, I'm pretty sure Google doesn't for complicated reasons relating to the takeover <laughs> of Ireland Online by ESAT. And ESAP breaking something on their web server, which serves up but don't index anything on this site to, uh, <laughs> to Google. So it may be a little bit more obscure than it should be. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure if, if you really want to find it and dig around, you'll, you'll eventually sure. come across it. I'm sure it's around somewhere,
2: all right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Prob- yeah. Probably one of the things I did with Snoop uh, which, which I'm fairly happy I did, was to make the source code available with mm-hmm. it. And I've, I've had plenty of positive feedback from that as well and to that end um, I suppose certainly for Snoop DOS 3 I was a bit more conscientious when I was writing it that it may have a slightly wider audience than just myself in terms of people reading the source code so I probably put a bit more effort into structuring it and making sure it was well commented and so on and my, my hope was that you know if somebody wanted to come along and see an example of you know how do you make a a window react to resizing and relay out all the gadgets and so on mm-hmm. how do you do that well well here's one way to
2: do it you know mm-hmm. that c- could actually be followed um, absolutely it, it, it's a uh, i've always noticed that myself as well that you always write code differently if you're writing for someone else <laughs> for sure
1: for sure yeah yeah so you know, it's, 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 it's a bit like getting dressed before you go outdoors yeah <laughs> you want to put yeah, your yeah, best foot forward
2: absolutely so um, and just on, on that as well, I noticed uh, there are clones of Snoop DOS as well. Um, just as an aside, because I know I, I have an OS4 machine here as well. that has got Snoopy on it. I was going to say Snoopy <laughs> came along a, a little bit after.
1: And yeah. uh, it did some things a little bit differently uh, mm-hmm. uh, than I would have done them. But, you know, sure, that's all part of it. It works, that's all it part works very, very well. And it that's, that's, Exa- uh, exactly. wouldn't and, exist without
2: you.
1: Well... <laughs> Exactly. If everybody did everything the same, life would be extremely boring. Well, absolutely. You absolutely. Know, and oft, often, no matter how good you think you've done something, when somebody else comes along and puts their perspective on it, you see an angle oh, that yeah. you, you weren't previously aware <laughs> of, and you go, God, God, can't believe I didn't think of that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely,
2: the more the merrier. Mm. So you, do you think you'll uh, you'll come back to the fold at some stage and get uh, get, get another Amiga in semi-regular use? Uh, I, I would like to say no but i can't
1: guarantee. <laughs> i can't guarantee it because now you've kind of whetted my appetite with all this with A-ROS uh, and so on and yeah, yeah. hardware and so on it's very tempting it's very mm-hmm. tempting i have Please no bandwidth get... whatsoever yeah. but that, that hasn't really stopped me in the past so that uh, we'll mm-hmm. wait and see no 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 guarantees but, no, uh, but you know, if, if you'd asked me you know 10 15 years ago would people even know what an amiga was in 2017? I, I would have been very sceptical then. Not at all. And, yeah. And here we are. So,
2: mm.
1: yeah. Who, who knows?
2: You'll have to you'll have to come along to the next Ireland meeting anyway, um, in January, and uh, have a, have a look at what what's going on.
1: Well, indeed, I, I very much look forward to that, and and hopefully I'm going to be in the country. And if I am, I will certainly do my best to make it down there. because the phone is only about an hour way, mm. so very very reachable. And in fact, it's great you're having it in such a a country central location. Uh, because yeah, things you know. things tend to happen too much in Dublin sometimes and it's great for all of us in Dublin, but for everyone around the rest of the country it's, you know, the onus is on them to try and get there. So Atlone is a good central uh, central location and there's lots of other nice stuff in Atlone to make a weekend out of it as well. Mm, absolutely.
0: Right. Um, is there any chance, in your opinion, that somehow, someday, Amiga can go mainstream again? Like, you know, in the 80s or in the 90s?
1: I think been honest about it, No, <laughs> highly, <laughs> okay. highly unlikely. Um, but also, I think if it did go mainstream, it would it would probably end up losing elements of what make it uniquely Amiga. In mm-hmm. order to go mainstream, you would have to guess, you know, the vast majority of computer users to adapt to it, and that's really not going to happen. So if that was the goal, you would have to change it so much that it would no longer be an Amiga. It would just be something else that was, you know, some kind of diluted version of what we already have on, on Windows or whatever. Yeah. So so I don't really see it happening, but I also don't see it as desirable that that happen. I think it's great that all the people that are involved in this at the moment are involved because of their enthusiasm for it, not because they just needed to achieve a goal. And that's all. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, long live enthusiasm. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. On the subject of uh, enthusiasm, what are your best memories of Amiga personally?
1: Um, Probably my some of my fondest memories actually were going to the Amiga DevCon in Orlando, uh, which was the first and only uh, American DevCon I ever made it over to. And it was the one that they were previewing all the new uh, uh, 32-bit graphics chips. And in particular this was before the 4,000 and and so on came out and there was the the AAA chipset and I actually Mm. got to see a prototype of the AAA chipset which did exist and was real Mm -hmm. uh, but sadly never made it into production Um, but there was such a buzz there and there was such a cool group of people there, Uh, it's not like hanging with all the cool kids but uh, all the people (laughs) there were. We're just so invested in Amiga, so easy to talk to, and it was just a really great experience. So, uh, that would definitely go down as one of my highlights.
0: Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Eddie, is there anything you'd like to say before we wrap up?
1: Uh, no, the only thing I'd say is thanks to journalists and and Rob and Luke for hosting me. It's been great to have a chance to you know revisit some of the some of the amiga stuff from my past i've really enjoyed it and uh, kudos to you guys for for getting the meetups going and and the website and so on you know and long may it continue
0: it's been an absolute pleasure eddie thank you absolutely. Um, it's been an honor and pleasure thanks a lot well i eddie. look forward
1: to meeting you all in person hopefully in uh, in january if not before. Excellent. absolutely the is
0: mutual <laughs> thanks a um, lot guys is- Eddie's homepage is snoopdos.com. Don't forget you can see videos and photos of Amiga events in Ireland from 2016-2017 at amigayusers.ie. Eddie, again, it's been really enjoyable talking with you. Thanks so much. And thanks to everyone for listening. Until next time, bye. Bye -bye.
1: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. (laughs)
0: Bye-bye.